Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Juneau, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Landa Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with Alex Belf, the curator of the Stax Reader and the editor of Esquire Classic. The Stax Reader is a treasure trove of classic magazine journalism and other writing that otherwise might be lost to history. Belf has built this archive largely by himself reaching out to writers and their families and obtaining the rights to republish. There are stories in the Stacks Reader that go all the way back to 1932, like Westbrook Pegler's Chicago Tribune story headlined, The Called Shot Heard Round the World. And the idea really is to, you know, provide a place where you're really making, I'm making a, a museum for stories that would otherwise like you said, really sort of be forgotten or or overlooked. One of the writers whose work has been preserved on the site is a man named O'Connell Driscoll. Driscoll's first magazine piece was a 13,000-word profile of Jerry Lewis. He wrote it for Playboy while he was still in college. So Driscoll simply introduced himself to Jerry Lewis, and Jerry Lewis thought he was this cute, goyish, gory kid, and said, yeah, sure, come on, hang out. So this kid was a junior in high school, a junior slash senior in in college, and he did his first magazine assignment where he got this tremendous amount of access to a really big star. Belf recently received the 2020 Tony Salon Memorial Award from the Baseball Reliquary. He was honored for his work on the Stax Reader and Esquire Classic, as well as his own baseball writing. He wrote Stepping Up, a biography of St. Louis Cardinals outfielder Kurt Flood. He was included in Best American Sports Writing 2012 for his Deadspin story on sports writer George Kimball. He often writes for Esquire.com and continues to write for Bronx Banter, a website Belt created that is focused on everything from sports to arts and culture in New York City. As usual, I've posted links to everything that we talk about on our website. That includes the Stax Reader, Esquire Classic, Bronx Banter, and some of the stories mentioned in our talk. You can find those links at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, Alex. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. Uh, first off, congratulations on receiving the Tony Salen Memorial Award given by Baseball Reliquary uh, for your work on Esquire Classic and the Stacks Reader, but also for your great baseball writing. That's pretty fantastic. Oh yeah, thanks, man. That was just uh, <laughs> that was just completely unexpected and uh, a real, obviously a real, a real thrill. Uh, just. The fact that it was unexpected made it even more exciting because, uh, you know, I started my 
writing career writing about baseball, and yet for the last uh, five or six years, especially since I've been with Esquire, I've really been working on, you know, material that has not really much to do with sports or baseball at all. So for this to come now was really sort of out of the blue, but one that was uh, really humbling. No, it's fantastic, and and I think well-deserved. You know, both Esquire Classic and and the Sax Reader are great um, because they're amazing archives, and and this is why I wanted to have you on the show. Um, You know, these archives that have preserved these great magazine work that otherwise might have been lost. Um, Back in uh, 2015, I talked with Tyler Cabot um, when Esquire Classic was launched. Uh, So I'd love to talk with you about the Sax Reader. Yeah, and I, and I just, you know, as a, as a quick note, you know, Tyler was the guy that brought me on to be the editor at at, at the at Esquire Classic. And although he, he's a pretty self-effacing guy, uh, doesn't like a lot of credit, but, you know, the fact that Esquire Classics exists is because of of, of Tyler. And not Tyler alone. He had a, a, a great team of people that helped him put that together. But particularly in a, in a big company like Hearst, um, where there's sort of a lot of competing factions and, you know, internal politics, you know, the fact that he actually got that thing built was, uh, a real, uh, credit to him, uh, that he had the vision to want to do it. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. I still remember when it launched, I was still back in Ashland, Ohio and, and it was just like utterly lost in those old issues of Esquire. Um, the fact that you could go back and like literally scroll through the pages like pdf version it was amazing absolutely man um one thing i love about the stacks reader um is that you're not only curating classic journalism but in and you're also writing about a lot of these great magazine writers um too many of whom have sort of been forgotten um how how did how did the whole project come about well, it really just evolved. Uh, I hate to use a trite word like organically, but in, in a way, that's really what happened. Um, I worked in uh, the movie business and post-production film editing in my 20s and uh, was sort of disillusioned with that and didn't know really what I wanted to do. And in 2002, I started Bronx Banter, which was a, uh, a blog about following the Yankees. And... So for a couple of years there, four, five, six years, I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll be a sports writer. Maybe I'll, you know, uh, write about baseball professionally. And sort of along the way, I ended up writing a book about, uh, within a couple of years, I wrote a book about Kurt Flood, a baseball player. And that sent me to the public library looking up some old articles and some magazines on, on microfilm. And you know, I would be looking for one particular article, and then I'd run into the table of contents and find about four or five other ones that I, I was interested in that may or may not have had anything to do with the subject that I was researching. And uh, that sort of was like the the aha moment for me, where I, uh, you know, I grew up as collecting books, collecting records, haunting all those kinds of stores. And, you know, sometimes if you were, you had to be a real searcher if you were looking for that edition of, the particular edition of, of a book or a record. And sometimes you'd be, you know, you'd spend months or years looking for something in particular. And once the internet came around and eBay was there, you know, you could do a, have a shortcut and find things pretty quickly. And so I was really fascinated by the idea of 
vibrant, interesting magazines, and this was probably 2004 or five. Um, so places like, yes, the New Yorker had their archives. They might have been digitized already. At least they were on CD-ROM or the New York Times. You know, certain institutions had archives, but most of them, including Esquire at the time, did not. And I was just fascinated by the idea of all this great material that was essentially buried on microfilm. And so I would fight with those old uh, Xerox machines and uh, microfilm machines at the New York Public Library and make Xeroxes and then PDF them and send them around to friends. And uh, just because, you know, if I ever find something interesting, my first instinct is to share it with people. Um, I'm like, oh, look, cool, treasure, check it out, you know. <laughs> and And what I found is that along the way, um, I became less interested with writing about sports, particularly because in a modern era, uh, you know, it was harder to get access to athletes, and you know, uh, so they were not particularly interesting to me. And and sports writers were were a lot more accessible and interesting. And so I started to become friends with writers and editors of a certain generation, m- m- many of whom worked in the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s, you know, um, and. They weren't all avuncular necessarily, but there was definitely a custodial feeling amongst practitioners at that time. So, you know, I was at Time Inc. and I had a day job there. And, you know, so I started to get some entrees into Sports Illustrated. And I met an editor there, senior editor named Rob Flader. Um, and Rob Flader was married to Mar- is married to Marilyn Johnson, and Marilyn Johnson was a, uh, an editor, a young editor at um, at Esquire. And you meet someone like Marilyn, who's written some terrific books and, and is a wonderful journalist. And then she says, "Well, do you know about Pete Dexter? And then, or, or, or do you know about Jenny Allen? Uh, have you read Sarah Davidson? And you know, you just end up going down the rabbit hole, and uh, that's sort of what sparked." my curiosity. And after becoming friendly with a bunch of these editors and writers, I ended up starting to reprint some, some old magazine pieces uh, on my site, Bronx Banter, which um, uh, with permission, you know, my thought was like, Hey, this doesn't exist online. And therefore for a generation of people, it's it's as if it doesn't exist at all. What if somebody was, looking for a Red Smith or a W.C. Hines piece, and I could somehow facilitate it existing, I thought, well, that would be pretty cool. And um, and after I started doing that, Tommy Craggs, who was running Deadspin at the time, asked me if I wanted to start uh, doing a variation of that, just archive, uh, sort of a, a, an archive for them. So I started a blog called The Stacks in 2013 for Tommy, and then did a weekend sort of version of that for uh, Malcolm Jones over at the Daily Beast. And it was that work that eventually got me the gig with Tyler and Esquire Classic. And at some point, particularly with all the things that were going on with Deadspin, I just ended up opening up, I mean, creating a site called the Stacks Reader, which essentially compiled everything that I had reprinted on Bronx Banter, Daily Beast, and Deadspin, and then moving forward, just use that as my sort of home base. And the idea really is to, you know, provide a place where you're really making, I'm making a a museum for stories that would otherwise, like you said, really sort of be forgotten or or overlooked. That was really the, the idea behind the whole thing. Yeah, that's fantastic. 
Um, I, I was gonna, I want to ask you, how do you identify the writers that you hope to include? Um, and you, the way you described it, it's almost like you're doing genealogy, um, on some of these, these writers, you know, when you talk to people and they say, Oh, have you ever read this person? And you're just kind of going down this rabbit hole, but, but how do you, how do you identify who you want to go and, and, and get their stories to include? And then how do you get access to the pieces? Well, um, part of it is just leading by your nose, you know, in some ways, you know, uh, you know, I could be, read somebody and I'm like, eh, not so crazy about this writer. Or sometimes it's just a matter of like, wow, I, I just think this writer's amazing. Are they alive? Where are they? How do I find them? Right. You know, yeah, and sometimes it's like, for instance, right now I'm editing an anthology of a magazine writer named John Bradshaw, who wrote for New York Magazine and Esquire in the 70s. And because I had read his stuff in Esquire, you know, I naturally, I just Googled him, found out that he died in 1986, found his New York Times obituary, found out that, you know, who his wife was, tracked her down, gave her a call. And it just so happened, she said, yeah, we're actually putting together an anthology of his work. And so I landed into it like that, but sometimes it's just doing that kind of uh, easy kind of looking looking folks up and just picking up the phone and giving them a call. Mm-hmm. Um the stuff that I've probably been led to follows my own interest. You know, so at first it was, I, I was reprinting a lot of sports stories because that's where my head was at at the time. And, you know, but I come from, I've worked in, in the movie business. And so my interests have been, you know, the other cultural arts as well as sports, probably even more so than sports. So, um, for instance, you know, th- in the facts reader, you'll find a lot more profiles of show business people than you will true crime stories or stories about um, ecology or science. And it's not because um, I wouldn't reprint those stories. It's just that it hasn't been my natural interest. And really, the, the you know, with some exceptions, when I was doing this for Deadspin, I haven't had a budget from which to pay people uh, an honorarium. And if it was up to me, I would have give an honorarium to any writer that I reprinted because you're reprinting their work. Um, and so the folks that appear there are people who have given me their permission. Um, in some cases, I, I, uh, particularly in the early stages when I would approach people, there's some writers, particularly from that generation, whose attitude is, well, you know, if you're not going to pay me, I'm, you know, forget it. I'm not interested. And I can't begrudge that. I mean, I understand that completely. There's other writers, though, who feel like, say, Peter Richmond, who was a longtime writer at GQ. Um, and, you know, Peter was like, oh, my God, you want to reprint my stuff? That's wonderful. Go ahead. You know, sort of carte blanche. And so really, it's the people that I've met and I've been friendly with and made a connection with who are the folks that are represented in the in the collection. Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess pie in the sky. I'd love to feature Joan Didion and Hunter Thompson, but those are sort of A-list names where you're going to have to pay money to have their stuff appear. And again, fair enough. Um, So that is sort of, that's sort of some of the parameters. And the other case is that I'm only reprinting work where the writers, in fact, own the rights to them. 
So, for instance, that'll knock anything out of, like, Frank DeFord that he wrote for SI, right, or, or any contract writer for Sports Illustrated because that's owned by Sports Illustrated or Newsweek. Uh, that's why there's much fewer newspaper stuff that I have because generally if you were on staff for a newspaper, the, the paper owns that material. Um, so that's definitely, um, you know, that those are really the parameters, but I'm constantly – in a state of um, sort of discovery and learning. So there's, I'm by no means any kind of expert in uh, magazine journalism, meaning that there's still names that someone will say, well, have you read so-and-so? I'm like, I've never heard of so-and-so. <laughs> and not like, oh, my God, I can't believe, you know, I don't feel embarrassed about it. I just feel excited, like, holy crap, no, tell me more, tell me more, you know? Because I think there's something about the nature of writing either for a newspaper or or um, or for or for a magazine that is quite anonymous. Um, I mean, yes, we're in this sort of journalism world, so we we know different names of, of writers, even ones that you know might have practiced years ago. But I think the average reader doesn't necessarily pay attention. I mean, yes, if you're Joan Didion, yes, they probably probably know, you know, that name. But most, I always get a sense that most folks, even bookish kind of people, are say, oh, well, did you read that piece in the New Yorker last week? There's a fascinating piece in the Times. But do people really remember the bylines? And if they do, do they remember the bylines 15, 20, 30 years later? Um, so there's something, you know, famous fleeting in, in all realms of, of, of public life. But probably even doubly, triply so for uh, magazine writers. And, and unless you become late, you know, it used to be people would start in newspapers and then they'd graduate to magazines, right? Because you had more, uh, you, you could be more creative in a magazine. And then, you know, but that's a tough life. to, to It's tough to make a living as a freelance magazine writer. So then you graduate to writing screenplays or books, you know, that, that's the sort of trajectory. Think of like Nora Ephron or something like that, right? But, um, you know, but those names aren't really quite well remembered. So for me, there's a great honor in just presenting or representing work to people that, uh, to an audience that might have missed it the first time around or altogether, well, you know? Yeah, there's, um, there's, there's one writer who, uh, that you mentioned to me when we were setting this up who, I didn't recognize the name at all. And actually, I think that's I, that's what I love about the Sax Reader is it's not necessarily going to be the big names, you know, that, that everybody already pretty much knows, but it's going to be all these other people um, who were doing amazing stuff that, that for whatever reason, that didn't get passed down. Um, and, and one of the people that you mentioned uh, to me, and I read some of his work, and I was like, holy crap, how have I never read this, is O'Connell Driscoll. Um, oh, who, uh, I feel like it's a bit embarrassing that I teach literary journalism and I've never heard of him. Um, especially after I started reading some of his, his work. Um, can you, can you tell me about Driscoll and, and the, 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 the story behind his life? Yeah. Driscoll is, is, is just terrific. And, and really is like, he's the essential stacks reader find, right? Because right. he's somebody who is really, he, he is a gem, and he is a real treasure. Uh, and he, it, and he, it, he, O'Connell Driscoll was a guy who grew up in uh, Los Angeles. His father worked in the film business, um, worked in industri- made industrial movies, 
and Driscoll was um, in high school um, in the late 60s when his, his father gave him a copy of Tom Wolfe's first anthology. And Driscoll read Tom Wolfe and said, well, yeah, you know, I don't want to be a movie director or a rock star. I want, I want to do that. I want to do this. This what, I, what was called, I guess, the new journalism then. Although Driscoll would have been equally as influenced by, by Lillian Ross and the Joseph Mitchell and the kind of long, you know, clean, cleanly, clean writing, long profiles that the New Yorker did years before the new journalism. Um, but Driscoll was a, 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 an undergraduate at USC when he started pitching around stories. And at that point, he, he initially pitched up to Playboy and, and to Esquire. And Playboy was interested. They actually, he, he pitched a story about being on the set of a John Cassavetes movie. And um, they turned him down, but they said, well, keep pitching. And so he was an intrepid young guy. So he kept pitching until he annoyed the shit out of him. And they, they accepted one of his pitches pitches, which was to do a profile of Jerry Lewis, who at that point in the early 70s was past his, his, his real prime in, in the movies, um, but was still obviously a real big star um, um, playing in Vegas and, and internationally. He was, he was a, a big star, but his moment really in, in the zeitgeist had kind of passed him by. And so Driscoll simply introduced himself to Jerry Lewis, and Jerry Lewis thought he was this cute, goyish, goy kid, and said, "Yeah, sure, come on, hang out, hang out with me. I'm I'm going to Miami Beach to perform with Milton Berle. Then I got to go to Germany." So this kid was a junior in high, uh, a junior slash senior in in college, and he did his first magazine assignment where he got this tremendous amount of access to a really big star. And he wrote a 13,000-word profile for Playboy um, that, I mean, when I read this piece, I just thought, well, this is, this is up there with Frank Sinatra has a cold as a great piece. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a fly-on-the-wall kind of uh, a, a view of, of, of Jerry Lewis. And um, it, it was written in the kind of, the, a, a, such a clean style. So that you didn't even ha well, Driscoll didn't even give you biography. He didn't give you. Uh, he only gave you observation in what he saw. He didn't. He didn't do any kind of analysis. It was a real stripped down version of of what Kate Talese was essentially doing, right? Just sort of observing, and um, the the piece was was really terrific, and it launched his career. But Driscoll was a really um, exacting and careful writer. He was interested in show business personalities, and he only wrote a scant seven profiles in his career. And his career is one of those things where it only could have happened at that moment in time in pop culture history. I mean, where, where uh, celebrities were willing to give access to a reporter to let him hang around that long and create scenes. Um, and, uh, so I ended up finding all of his pieces. Um, he wrote them all for Playboy or Rolling Stone. They're all really terrific. And, um, you know, I looked them up and found that there was an O'Connell Driscoll that lived in Santa, uh, Santa Barbara. And I tracked him down and sure enough, there he was, you know, 
he, he had quit the magazine business in, in the late 80s, uh, left L.A., ended up moving to Santa Barbara and working in Nordstrom's and then Saks Fifth Avenue in, in management and doing something completely different than writing. When you uh, got hold of Driscoll, how, um, how interested was he in talking about this, this former career? Well, you know, some people, um, you know, some people don't want to talk about the, the old days. They're just, they're just not interested, you know. And I've met certain writers that are terse and not particularly, you know, inviting. Um, O'Connell was absolutely the opposite. He was, he was happy to hear from me. Um, he, he was pleased that I, I mean, first of all, he gave me permission to run all of his pieces, which for, for me was just wonderful because, you're adding to your collection, um, and uh, with pieces that you you really, uh, well, which I really appreciated. Um, but you know, the, the when Jerry Lewis was was when he was doing the piece on Jerry Lewis, Jerry Lewis was editing a movie called The Day the Clown Cried, which is a sort of infamous movie in in Jerry Lewis history because it was a sort of a misbegotten attempt for him to make a serious movie about the Holocaust and. It was such a catastrophe that it, it was never, uh, it was never released, um, and 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 yet, um, y- you know, he, he let the kid hang out with him um, during it. And I said, well, listen, you know, haven't you know a lot of people have written about Jerry Lewis since? There's been other profiles of him, and there's been other, you know, there's been biographies of him. I was like, well, who's who has talked to you about this? He says, you're the first guy that's called me in 40 years which almost pissed me off on, on, on just like, well, you had stories. What, it, didn't take, it wasn't that hard to find your Playboy piece even before it was digitized, you know? Um, so sometimes there's just wonderful scenarios like that where, for me, I'm a relatively social guy, but, yeah, it's a little nerve-wracking to pick up the phone and call somebody out of the blue, you know, and... and it, you know, you don't know if they're going to be friendly or not. Um, but for me, it's always worth sort of swallowing hard and and just dialing the number because, in some cases, like with O'Connell, it was it was just great. I mean, I, I was it was a pleasure to get to know him a little bit and find out his story, and then also get to you know present his work and the stuff that appears on the stacks reader I, I don't like own the rights to any of that stuff i just asking for rights to reprint it you know i'm not you know so i'm not trying to you know exploit old writers or anything the idea is to you know kind of honor them in, 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 a, in a in this space and also not for nothing right now i don't charge any money for the site it's it's not under a paywall i don't run ads so one of the things I'm actually quite most proud of is that um, the reading experience is really clean. You, know, you can read a, a long piece without being interrupted every third or fourth paragraph with a pop-up ad, um, which I find increasingly irritating <laughs> if you read the Washington Post or the Times, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're uh, going to take a short break. Uh, when we return, Alex and I will continue talking about the Stacks Reader and more. Stay tuned. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangri the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program 
designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the digital journalism program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I'm talking with Alex Belf, the curator of both the Stax Reader and Esquire Classic. Uh, and I should also mention um, a fellow former SB Nation long-form writer and someone who's been anthologized in Best American Sports Writing. So uh, we'll, t- we'll talk a little bit about that here in, in a bit. But um, uh, going back to the Stax Reader, um, you just recently got permission to host several of Ron Rosenbaum's stories, who you, who you mentioned a little earlier uh, in the stacks. Um, what are some of the pieces that he wrote that you're most excited to have included there? When it comes to Ron, any and all, you know, (laughs) uh, because, you know, again, as I was mentioning about Ron, what's kind of cool about him is that he's just done such a, he's just done such a wide variety of things. And I've known him for a few years now and, you know, once COVID hit, I don't know, we, we emailed about something and I kind of like broached the idea about putting a Ron Rosenbaum collection on the stacks. And he was really, he was really into it. Um, and, you know, I mean, Ron has written, you know, about conspiracy things and, uh, you know, a Philby um, and spies and Shakespeare and, Lots of great scandals. I mean, he has a piece about he has a piece about Long Island because he's from Long Island um, that he wrote in the early '90s for the New York Times Magazine, where you know that was the sort of time where there was a lot of you know the Amy Fisher and Joey Buttafuoco story. There was like a lot of weirdness going on in Long Island at the time, and he wrote this this expose of of Long Island that was part investigative journalism, part analysis cultural analysis, part memoir, and he was just sort of a master at that kind of form, being able to mix all those things in and out. I mean, personally, I also, I'm a sucker. I got a real sweet tooth for showbiz. So I I like his, he did a great profile of Jack Nicholson for the New York Times Magazine in the 80s. I'm always sort of leaning on him to say, hey, can I put up that Pacino one? And, you know, it's not his most substantial work. I just happen to really love it. Um, Last week, we put up uh, a profile that he did on Roy Cohen. Um, There was a magazine uh, that lasted for maybe around a decade called Manhattan Inc. uh, that came out in the 1980s when, you know, the money and uh, the sort of yuppie 80s was exploding. And it was... David Remnick wrote for them pretty regularly, and they wrote features about the power players in New York. And Rosenbaum, who was somebody who was from the Village Voice and a real lefty, you know, was hired by Jane Amsterdam, um, who ran the magazine, to write a regular feature. It wasn't a column where he would go to lunch. He'd go to lunch with these sort of powerful people, whether it was, you know, then Governor um, Mario Cuomo or 
you know, businessman. Um, he did one on Murray Kempton, which I can't wait to um, reprint, the, the great uh, newspaper writer, because Ron is a huge, huge, huge fan of, of Murray's. And, um, but he just went to have lunch with these folks. So his, he, he goes and uh, has lunch uh, w- with Cohen, and it's just at Le Cirque, where, where Cohen orders, you know, he brings his own um, tuna fish sandwich, you know, <laughs> and the piece is called All Power, No Lunch, you know, because lunch didn't even matter. Um, but those pieces are just, pieces like that are just so insightful and um, and fun. You know, Ron, Ron, considering how heavy a lot of his subjects were, um, it's, it's funny, you know, and um, there's, to me, there's, there's no more winning quality. You um, have a Q&A uh, with, that you did with Rosenbaum a few years ago. I think you did it for Esquire Classic. Um, yeah. Was there anything that, that stood out that, that really sticks in your mind from doing that Q&A with him? Yeah, the, the thing that sticks out is that when I asked Ron, um, you know, who started with uh, started again at the Village Voice and then pretty quickly at the New Yorker, um, I asked him, was there anything that his editors, that, that he found was a commonality between the great editors that he worked with? And he said that he thought all great editors are charismatic listeners. And that really struck me, um, because having spent a little bit of time around um, a, a magazine, you know, when you're a freelance writer and you're off in your own place and you just send submit things, you don't really get a sense of the day in, day out of, uh, of, of, of a publication. And so it's easy to get really pissed off when you don't hear back from somebody or, you know. And for me, just being around the Esquire offices, you, you know, in the time that I've been there, you just see how busy people are. And if somebody can afford you five, ten minutes of their time, just the attention, the idea of, not picking up the phone, not looking at your text, and just really listening to you and being engaged. And the idea of just that listening, not being a passive act, but somehow eliciting more in you, getting you to dig more out of yourself, I mean, that just seemed fabulous. What a great talent and quality to have. And I've seen people who have that, editors, who do have that quality. And again, not just spending the time knowing that they don't really have much time, but really being engaged uh, and interested in, in their writer um, to get things out of that writer that the writer might not have complete access to, you know, in their consciousness. Um, that, that was something that I'll, I'll never forget. I love that phrase, charismatic listener. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, one piece that you have in the Stacks Reader is your own essay, The Two Rogers. Uh, which ran on SB Nation long form in 2012. And um, I should note this piece ran exactly one week after my first SB Nation long form piece, Feet of Clay, Heart of Iron. So our pieces ran back to back, um, which I remember reading your piece when it was first published, but in my mind, I didn't remember that they came back to back until I just looked it up uh, here today. Um, How long had you worked on that piece? And, 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 had you did you know that that was an SB Nation long form thing, or had you been working on that previously for somewhere else, maybe, or or how did that piece come together? Well, first of all, I should say that Glenn Stout, um, who edited that piece and who was the editor of SB Long Form, is one of the first 
people that I met when I started my Bronx Panther blog, who was, uh, you know, and Glenn, Glenn became a friend pretty quickly, but was also, uh, you know, a mentor of sorts, somebody who opened opened the gates for me. He had told me about different writers. Um, sometimes would look at something that I wrote, you know, and say, hmm, you know, I'm not sure you want to publish that. You know, somebody might, you know, he, he had my back. You know, he really, he really had my back, and he, and he didn't need to. Um, and he was incredibly generous. And so um, he and I developed a friendship and got to know each other. And once he became the editor at SB Nation, he said, you know, if you have anything you want to pitch, and at that point, I had, you know, uh, my father died 13 years ago, and I had a sort of fraught relationship with him. And uh, he was a loving guy, but he was also a domineering guy. And so when I first met Glenn in my early 30s, mid-30s, that was still something I was pretty pre- preoccupied with, um, my dad. Um, and interestingly, you know, how these things happen subconsciously, it's informed a lot of the subjects that I've written about, whether it's George Kimball, uh, who was a sports writer, uh, uh, or even this latest book on John Bradshaw. When I look a little bit beneath the surface, all these guys have some parallels to my father or my relationship with him, you know. So I'm not consciously picking out these subjects, but there you go. You know, like Fellini said, you know, you, every movie is the same movie. You know, you, everyone has these themes. And so I had visited Roger Angel, I mean, sorry, Roger Kahn previous to writing that piece. And I didn't think I would write that. Uh, I, I, I just knew I had material from that visit, but I didn't necessarily see how it could fit into an essay. Um, cause I found him kind of a disagreeable guy and I, I didn't want to just write an essay like trashing a guy who I, I didn't particularly like. I mean, that didn't make any sense. But when uh, the construct of tying it into the memoir with my father and books um, and Roger Angel, um, I sort of kicked it around with Glenn and and we worked on it together. And, you know, Glenn's one of those guys as an editor who is also a writer. So I find that you know, some editors are just straight up editors and they have a different quality to them. Glenn's not only a writer, but he's a poet. So you can go macro with him and talk about structural things and this section here, that section there, but you can also go word for word, punctuation for punctuation with Glenn. And I found that that sort of poet's kind of attention to every word was something that kind of raised my awareness when when I was working. Mm-hmm. And so the back and forth, also the, the back and forth, I don't know how, what your experience was like with him, but I could just keep going back and forth. And the guy, it'd be like fielding grounders until it gets too <laughs> dark to see. Like he wasn't going to like quit. Like you could keep going. Although on the other hand, part of what was great about him is that I remember, and we, we told the story since uh, he and I, but there was one draft in which I took it too far. It's like the thing was done, and then I started to kept I kept fucking with it because I couldn't let it go, and he was just like, "Yeah, just everything you just did, you could just forget all that." <laughs> and I remember thinking like, I was so in the weeds I couldn't really see clearly, but I I understood the truth in what he was saying, and I said, "You know what? I trust him." And you know, sometimes that's what you need most, right? In the working relationship, it's like, particularly if you're writing something that's part memoir 
it's first of all, it's very personal. Um, so you're you're putting yourself out there, um, not to mention your family. And in, in, in this case, my father had already passed away, but still, I'm I'm putting something very intimate out there. Um, but also, you want to you want to be saved from yourself, man. <laughs> I mean, Glenn saved me from myself. I mean, and, and that's that's a huge thing that an editor can do. Because, you know, you also don't want to be an indulgent, navel-gazing bastard out there. You know, you don't want to think just because this happened to me, it's important. And so, I mean, I always feel very proud of that piece. But you know what's funny? I don't even think of the way the story's turned out. I just always think about the writing experiences that I had. Like, for instance, just last month, I I did a little story on um, a new documentary called the the death and i mean the war and the peace of of tim o'brien and a guy named aaron matthews has made this wonderful documentary about tim o'brien that's looking for a distributor right now so i I saw uh, an advanced copy of the of the documentary loved it wrote a piece for esquire.com about it which is you know it was a sort of standard service journalism piece and i kind of love service journalism particularly if i'm enthused about the, the thing that we're talking about and uh, Ryan D'Agostino, who was um, an editor for David Granger at Esquire and then later ran Popular Mechanics and now is a, is a sort of roving features editor for Hearst, um, will sometimes work with uh, Esquire writers. And so I sent a draft to, to Ryan uh, when I thought the piece was in pretty good shape. And he just gave me, <laughs> he just gave me the best edit, man. And, and it was light. And it was a lot of it was just moving some furniture around, but it it was also the, the subject of this documentary is about mortality and fatherhood. And I'm in my late forties, but I happen not to be a dad. So sometimes if I look at a father son relationship, even if I'm contemporaries with the father, I'll sort of emotionally, psychologically always sort of identify with the child, you know, and, um, Ryan's a dad. And he's roughly my age. And so he just made a couple. It was like putting a little acid in your sauce at the end or a little salt. It was like a balancing thing. Mm -hmm. And it was very quiet. It was a very quiet, subtle couple of changes he made. But it was from the perspective of somebody who was a dad. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm deficient in that vitamin simply because I'm not a dad. I can fantasize what it would be like to be a dad, but I'm not one. So those instincts would not be come naturally to me. And he just calibrated it. And I thought, God damn, when editors are good, I think Susan Orlean put up something on Twitter a couple of weeks ago where she said it was a privilege to be edited. And of course, you know, you, I've run into horrible experiences with editors too. And I don't really fall on one side or the other of, you know, you know, you know, you look at Bartlett's quotes of quotations of like how horrible editors are, or how wonderful they are. But, Essentially, I would work with editors, never mind what the story is, just to have that collaborative experience. So whether it was Glenn, Ryan, um, you know, there was a woman named Amy Grace Lloyd who used to work for Esquire, uh, who gave an edit of my story that I still like get teary thinking about how great the edit was. You know, but I, I, you know, I, I, I love the collaborative nature when I'm writing of, of working with other people, because to me, that's, that's part of the, that's part of the fun. Yeah. Do you feel like when you're working on the stacks, the, the stacks reader that is you're kind of by yourself ever? 
because you're kind of like going down these rabbit holes and uh or, or is this is, is there collaborativeness there as well well there's collaborativeness because it's because of the connections that i'm making and people are allowing me to reprint their mm-hmm. stuff right so instantly you know like for instance if i ever came across somebody who was like nah i don't want you to reprint my stuff then i would be like of course i wouldn't i wouldn't I wouldn't want to have your anyone's stuff there that didn't want to be there. But that connection between a writer and, and or even or an illustrator and some and a lot of times because of the, the, the people whose work I'm trying to appreciate are no longer with us, it's with uh, so it's with Paul Hemphill's wife or Grover Lewis's wife or W. C. Hines's daughter, you know. It's it's the relatives that I have the connection with. But when there is a, a, a kind of when there is a connection between the two of us that seems really um, we're on the same page, you know, that this of what the mission is here, that makes me feel like I'm actually makes me feel connected and like I'm doing something. I'm not trying to see like self-important that this is like changing the world in any way. It's not, but the act of the act of preserving something period is something that, I find incredibly valuable, maybe not monetarily, <laughs> like, like, uh, it's not going to make you rich, but, uh, a mo- like for instance, my mom was from Belgium, right? She, she has a black currant bush where she makes black currant jam every year. She has a branch that bush came from a branch of my grandmother's red black currant bush in Belgium 30 years ago. So every year when we have this jam, it is actually from that, uh, from my family's history. So that sense of that meaning something, um, I think it's just part of my personality. And then when you're dealing with somebody who's appreciative of it and, and that connection is huge. I also have people that have worked with me behind the scenes, um, who have helped me even just in a technical thing, you know, you know, uh, you know, take a PDF and make it into a, a text document, clean it up. I have a, a real small, close group of, of, of people who have been incredibly helpful. It's definitely not a one-person a one person job. Um, so for me, there is a small little collective thing. and I, But I just sort of keep my nose to the grindstone and, and engaged with it. And every once in a while, someone will say, wow, that was, that was really cool. And, and um, you know, that's enormously satisfying for me. Do you have um, anything coming up uh, for the Stacks Reader uh, that might be going up sometime soon that you're excited about? Oh, you know, it's kind of a steady stream. You know, we're still, I'm still in this midst of my Ron Rosenbaum run. So I think for like, you know, the next couple of weeks, we're going to do, uh, probably next couple of months, we're still going to put out a bunch of Iran stuff. Um you know, I guess I have a hit list <laughs> or wish list, I should say. I mean, I'd love to put up more of Allison Glock stuff, for instance. I mean, talk about another funny, really, really smart, great magazine writer. Um, or Helen Lawrenson, who was somebody who wrote for Esquire starting in the 1930s. It's really one of the first magazine celebrity profilers who I think is incredible. Um, or even Helen Dudar. Um, who wrote for the many places, starting with the New York Post. Um, and she was married to a guy for a long time named Peter Goldman, who was Newsweek's lead feature writer. Another, that's a whole other subcategory of really interesting journalists, people who worked for, uh, 
Time Magazine or, or Newsweek, where for a long time they didn't even have bylines. You yeah, know, it was group right. journalism. You right. know, which is a whole other sort of a whole other ball of wax. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if if you're a reader and you're interested in older pieces, um, you know. If you come over by the Stacks Reader in the next couple of months, you know, you're going to see two, three, four different pieces a week. Um, and then, you know, hopefully more profiles. And um, I hope I hope the next time we talk, Matt, that I'll have found out three or four other writers that I had never even heard of before. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Well, Alex, it has been absolutely great talking with you. Um, and uh, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Hey, man, dude, I really appreciate this. I've been talking with Alex Belf, a curator of the Stax Reader and an editor of Esquire Classic. As usual, you can find links to everything we've talked about on the show at our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's digital journalism program and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautics. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.